0: Good morning, and happy Mother's Day. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, if you have your Bibles, please flip them open to Genesis chapter one and verse twenty-eight. Uh, we're gonna—I'm gonna be kind of all over the Bible today, but this is one verse that I think is really important to the topic that we're going through. Um, so, I—I I do this. I teach different sermons. Uh, every service. I will be teaching three sermons today all about the glory and the beauty of motherhood. So this sermon is going to be focusing in on just a generalized aspect of it, and then the other two sermons are going to be on specific roles that motherhood serves and reflects God. But I think, you know, given the holiday, given what we're doing today, I think it is important for us to, as a body, as a church, to remember why this role is so important, especially in a world that's kind of gone away from it, and not really seen the the beauty of it for quite some time, and we'll be talking about that today. But anyway, Genesis 1 verse 28 says this, then God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your grace, your kindness, your love for us. Uh, I thank you for the gift of motherhood that you've given to mankind. I do pray that we'd be able to hone in on it right now, to focus on what your word says about this very important topic, that we'd be able to clear from our minds uh, cultural understandings and different preconceptions that we may have, uh, and allow your word to speak to us right now and help us to understand this in a fresh light, in a new light. We love you, Lord, and in your name. Amen. So, uh, this is something that I've been thinking about, I've been pondering over for the last couple years since, uh, since I became a dad and my wife became a mother. Uh, this topic of motherhood as it's being described throughout the world, throughout the church especially, and it's caused me to really reflect on the scriptures. What does the Bible say about motherhood? Why is it important? Why is it valuable? How does God see it? Things like that. A real re-education for me. And I wanted to share those, those insights that God has been giving me over the last couple years with you guys, and I, I really do hope that they bless you as they've been blessing me for sure. Uh, now, the first principle I want to pull out of this particular verse is that this is not just for mothers, right? So this, this is actually one of the first commandments that God gave to mankind, and it is only one of two commandments that he gave us in paradise, And the other commandment, the don't eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, we didn't do so hot with that one, so it doesn't apply to us anymore. But this one remains, and this is very unique. That means it is the only commandment that God has given mankind that is reflective of the ideal. Every other commandment that God has given us throughout the ages, through the law, even through the teachings of Christ, they are all reactive to the fall of mankind. They're all reactive to the fact that things are not as they ought to be, and God is giving us a pathway back to Eden, back to paradise, through his commands. This is the only command that we have from the Lord that is completely unaltered, unfiltered, pure in every distinct way, and reflective of God's perfect design. So I think it's important that we, that we focus on it. This also means that this is not just a teaching for mothers, This is not just for one specific group of people. This is for everybody. God, and this is something that I never thought I'd really have to explain in church, but our culture is just so interesting, you know? God loves people. God loves people. God became a man. God died for man. He subjected the entire creation, it says in Romans 8, to futility and hope that we would be redeemed. Now, the reason why I feel like I have to say that is because recently our culture has described human life as being almost like a cancer to this planet. We hear a lot about overpopulation and about how, how we're running out of resources and how things are going in a bad direction. There's even been a massive push to discourage people from having children and move away from these traditional roles. That's, that's very strange. You never really see that historically. This is a brand new philosophy that's come up within our current age. And that has affected how we view motherhood. Because if you see people as good, if you see human human life as precious and gorgeous, and you look at this passage and you say, Yes, God wants people to be fruitful. He wants us to multiply. God doesn't look at the planet and say, you know what's wrong with the planet? There's too many people on it. And I I hate that. I wish there was less people. God looks at the planet and he doesn't see that humanity and our numbers are the problem. He sees our sinful ways as the problem. But God's intent for the world is not to destroy humanity. His intent for humanity is to redeem us, to put us in our proper place, Notice, he doesn't just say to fill the earth, he says to subdue it. God's desire and design is for mankind to rule with him in the cosmos. This is why Jesus not only came as a man, but remains a man. Jesus is a resurrected man to this day, so that God's promise to mankind that we can rule the earth, that we could subdue it, is fulfilled through him and the redemption plan that comes by him. It's a wonderful and beautiful truth to understand. So, in the, in the military, when I was in the Marines, I, I always found this kind of interesting. I was an infantryman. And in the military, a lot of people don't know this, the infantry part of the military comprises about 1% of the entire armed forces. And again, that's surprising to some people because they think the entire military fights. But that's just not true. There's actually a very small percentage of the military that sees combat and has the specific role, the specific job to fight and trains to do so. The majority of the military is actually just supporting the infantry. So because of that, even though it's such a small percentage of the military is infantry, we still only describe them in terms of either grunt and non-grunts. We call them pogues, personnel other than grunts. So I was, a, yeah, it sounds d- demeaning, because it is. Now, and, and so there's this kind of pride that I had, you know, I was in the infantry. So there's this pride that you get in the infantry where you're like, yeah, like the military is for me. Everyone else exists for my benefit. It's for this specific goal that we fight and we defeat the enemy. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because it strikes me as very important that in order to fulfill this command, motherhood is very important sounds stupid to say this, but without mothers, you can't fulfill this command. We can't be fruitful. We can't multiply. We can't do anything, which means that whether you are going to become a mother or not, whether you are male or female, you are either going to be active in this role of fulfilling this commandment, meaning you're physically going to utilize your body to be fruitful and multiply, or you're going to support those who do. This is the entire principle behind what we call chivalry. Chivalry began in the Middle Ages as this idea of these Christian thinkers were going through passages like this, and they said, well, if we need to be fruitful and multiply, what is the role of the male beyond just getting the women pregnant? And the idea was we need to protect, defend, uplift, and cherish the role of mother in our society, because without them— we can't do this. We can't complete one of the most important functions that God has given mankind, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. That's very, very vital. Especially for Christians. In Malachi chapter 2, God says, why does he make the two one? Because he desires godly offspring. If this world is going to be redeemed... And this world is going to reflect God's values. It is imperative of us not to just spend our time as the church evangelizing, which is very important, making spiritual children, but to make physical children, to raise them up in the values, the ethics, the belief systems, the glory of God would be stamped on their hearts from day one. I am so thankful. I am so grateful that my parents, who come from an atheistic background, who didn't believe in God when they were growing up. My, my dad actually worked with his mom at this place that served turtle soup, and they read palms and stuff like that. It comes from an alcoholic background. I'm so thankful that God got a hold of my parents before I was born. And they raised me in the truth of God, that from a young age, I knew that there was a God out there that loved me and cared for me. I always knew that Jesus was a real person in history. And that his significance through my life and everyone else's was imperative. That happened through my parents, and actually, very specifically, it happened through my mother. It's not that my dad didn't have a very active role in my life. It's that my mom had a very unique and special role in my life. There is nothing like the relationship between a mother and her children. Nothing holds a candle to it. It's very, very precious. This also goes into something else that is wrong with our society, Um, We tend to think that the most important aspect of our lives is to become authentic, to be true to who we really are. That's why many young people use the phraseology, I need to find myself. Now, what they mean when they say that, if you've ever scratched your head and say, I I don't understand what you're saying, this is what they mean. They mean, I need to figure out who I am apart from anything that was given to me by my biology Upbringing or relationships. I need to be authentic to me, and all these things in my life are actually gearing me in a particular way. My biology is gearing me a particular way. The way my parents raised me is gearing me a particular way. My friends, my family. I need to figure out who I am underneath all of that. Now, biblically, that concept of finding yourself is not real. The Bible doesn't say we find who we are apart from our roles apart from our relationships, the Bible says that we figure out who we are in our roles. That we define ourselves and become more and more who we're meant to be as we relate to those whom God has given us to love. What is the commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't even fulfill the main command of God that Jesus has given us in the New Testament, unless it's reflective of your neighbor. You can't even understand self unless you understand God and neighbor. We do not become free. We do not become who we're meant to be through isolation and through self-authenticity. We become who we're meant to be through fulfilling roles, understanding what they mean for us, Because God gives us these commandments, not to be mean. Some people think that God gives us these like, hey, there's a lot of fun to be had and I need to put an end to it. So I'm going to give you these commandments and that will help you out, just be more miserable. No, God, Jesus actually says, I have come that they may have life and have it what? More abundantly. God did not come to take away from our satisfaction, fulfillment of life. He came to give it to us. And perhaps when you're looking around our society and ask yourself the question, are people today happier than they've been historically? Are they more fulfilled? Do they feel more certain? Do they have less anxiety? Do they have more peace and confidence? Do they really know who they are? And the answer is an emphatic no. Teen suicide is at an absolute high. Anxiety and depression rates have never been higher in our country. And it's all because we've forgotten what it means to be fulfilled. We're so busy seeking happiness that we have forgotten to pursue fulfillment. Fulfillment comes through roles. And we'll get more to that when we talk specifically about the role of females. Even when we think about becoming better Christians, you know, our, our moral language in the church has become so simplistic, so foolish in a lot of ways, so, so dumbed down, because we only think about our virtue through God as being what we don't do. We define it as what we don't do. You know, I don't drink. I don't do this. I don't have sex before marriage. I don't cuss. I don't do drugs. That's why I'm a righteous person. Very few of them even have spiritual aspects to it. I go to church. I share my faith. Did you know, even those things, coming to church, sharing your faith, those are just uplifting the main commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, we can't even honor God. We can't even become virtuous and beautiful in what God designed us to be unless we understand that you're on this earth to serve others, not self. We're here to love other people. We're here to care for them because God loves people. Let's start talking more about this role of motherhood and why it's so valuable In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11 through 12, it says, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Now, Paul here When he's talking about the relationship between man and woman, and I encourage you guys to read the entire chapter because it gets into not only the roles in regards to procreation, which is what we're talking about specifically today, but he talks about male and female roles in in general. And he says in this chapter that each role that God has assigned, the role of the husband and father versus the role of mother and wife, are there to reflect a specific attribute of God's glory. It says in Genesis that God created male and female, both in his image. Which means that our creator comprises both feminine and masculine attributes. It is not just that the man is seeking to glorify God. The woman is seeking to glorify God too, in a way that only the woman can do. The man is seeking to glorify God in a way that only the man can do, and the woman is seeking to glorify God in a way that only woman can do. And he hones in specifically on the aspect of procreation. Now think about this for a second. How does procreation reflect God's glory? And why is it so important? Well, there's a couple aspects that Paul gets to here, but we see throughout the scripture. Number one, God is always described as a male in regards to his church. Now, this may sound very obvious to a lot of you. You're like, of course, I've read the scriptures. God is always a male because he is a male. But think about this for a second. If God does have feminine attributes, and God is not male the way that you and I are male, why isn't God ever referred to in feminine light? And many theologians have pondered on this for a while. Why does not any aspect of God described in feminine verbs, feminine pronouns, things like that, And the answer to this is actually very simple. God is always described as a male because he's described in his relationship to mankind. We are the bride of Christ. Mary is the mother of our Lord. God relates to us in this very specific and beautiful way, which means that women have this incredible role, this amazing role to reflect this uniqueness of God in the way that he relates to us especially in the act of procreation. Because just as God creates in his image and likeness, you know what he's given to man? A capacity to create in our image and likeness. That when man and woman come together and unite themselves together in the bonds of love, we can then create, we can literally create life that bears our image collectively. That two individuals come together and they form one unique compound unity that is capable of creating another life in their image. What a glorious and amazing thing that is. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. First Timothy 2 verse 15 says, Nevertheless, she, the woman, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with all self-control. Paul, again, he's emphasizing this role of motherhood as being a capacity of the woman to be saved. Now, this doesn't mean that women can't be saved, know God without becoming mothers, but it is saying there is this amazing role that the woman has that can move her closer to God, sanctify her, draw her to the Lord, reflect God in a way that was lost in Eden. And again, the culmination of that is in Mary, where salvation came through the world through who? The woman, not the man. Now, when you put all these verses together, what you get this picture, you get this very beautiful picture that while it's not the totality of a woman's worth to become a mother, it is a unique capacity that will be the most important thing that a woman does in her life. I came up with a weird example of this my wife said it was weird, but I'm into comics, so maybe you guys will get it, maybe you're not. You know, I, I love comics. My favorite is Batman, but I think Superman is a little bit better for this analogy. So Superman, for those who don't know, his alter ego is Clark Kent, and he's a reporter. We don't know much about his reporting skills. Maybe he's a great reporter, I don't know. Maybe he's the best in the world. But nobody is going to remember Superman's accomplishments as being a reporter. And nobody reads about Superman or watches a movie saying, man, I can't wait till we get to the Clark Kent reporter stuff. This is great. It's not that we're diminishing his role as being a man, but we see his unique capacity to be Superman as being far more valuable. Why? Because anyone could be a reporter, but only he could be Superman. In the same way, and we'll talk more about this in a second when we get to these, uh, the, the principles of feminism, the woman's capacity to bear children doesn't give her worth, but it does give her a unique worth that only she can do. Any man can work a job. Only women can produce life in their bodies. That is a unique glory that God has only given to woman. Only. And if we don't see that as being uniquely glorious, and we say, no, you know, a woman's, uh, you know, how do I know that a woman is empowered? How do I know that she's really fulfilling her role? How do I know that she's really successful? Well, I look at her career acumen. Any man could do that. The monstrosity of today's day is that we diminish The unique glory of woman, and we transform them into simply another man. And I'll explain that in a second. Now, prophetically, we should have seen this coming. Prophetically, this war on women, that I'm going to do my best to explain why we're at kind of the pinnacle of it. This war on women has been something a long time coming. It began in Genesis have you ever wondered why Satan tempts Eve and not Adam? Why does he do that? Now, some men will be like, well, because women are more gullible. Well, you know, uh, it, it, for, for a woman to fall, it took literally the devil incarnate to tempt her to do it. What did it take for man to fall? He just did it. You know, we, we're not even given a reason, right? At least, at least Eve had a reason. Adam's just like, oh, I'll take it too. You know, like that, that's pretty pathetic if you ask me. Eve was tempted by Satan, and some people have really theorized about this because Satan despises Eve. Now I'm going to throw this out. This is a theory. I don't know this for a fact, but it's interesting to me. Jesus talks about angels in the Gospels, and he says that angels do not marry, neither are they given in marriage. You know what that means? Angels can't do what we do. Angels cannot create in their image. There is an interesting theory that Satan uniquely hates women because they can do something that he can't. It's a theory. I don't know if it's true. But I think it's very interesting that Satan specifically targets Eve in the garden. And we see this line throughout the Bible that Satan does hate all mankind, but he really hates women. Let me give you a couple of verses to, to, to prove this. Genesis 3 verse 15. This is God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between who? You and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A specific hatred for women. Revelation chapter 12. We're actually going through this on Wednesday night. Me and Bo are going to finish it up on Wednesday, hopefully. Um, But in Revelation chapter 12, a very interesting section of Scripture where the nation of Israel is depicted as a mother giving birth. And it talks about Satan uniquely attacking her, trying to kill her in her role as a mother. And this is another interesting one. Daniel 11, verse 37. This is talking about the Antichrist. Listen listen to what it says about him. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor any god for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now, some theologians have looked at this desire of women, and they've kind of scratched their heads. What does it mean? Some think that he will be homosexual. I don't really believe that. I don't think there's any evidence there that he will be homosexual. The desire of women could be translated, it could be taken as, he will disregard what women want. Does that make sense? His government will be kind of geared, specifically, presented in a way that is sent at subjecting women and preventing them from getting what they need. It's an interesting translation. And again, it does seem to go with Satan's overall hatred of women. Satan does not seem to like women very much. It is also interesting that when you look at world religions, if you notice anywhere that paganism goes, women are subjugated and mistreated. Anywhere the gospel goes, women are liberated. Why do you think that is? Why is Satan so focused on every religion? Think about that for a second. Every religion out there, every philosophy has its sources in a demonic root, except for Christianity, Judeo-Christianity, and every single one of them oppresses women in a different way. Isn't that weird? You know, sometimes you don't really stop and think about how weird that is. It's weird. Why would Satan be so fixated on this? Now, the way that cultures have oppressed women in the past are very different. So the prime way that women have been subjugated and oppressed is they've been viewed as only having value as vessels to produce children. That's generally how women have been oppressed. So men take all the power— and they say, these are the attributes that make a good person. And they look at physical strength and things like that. And they say, therefore, women are second-class citizens. They won't have the rights of a man. And their role is to just simply bear children. That's what they're there for. Now, a good example of this is in Islam. I was actually able to visit Afghanistan, if you call it visit. It wasn't really a trip. But, you know, you know I was able to go there. And I was able to see how women interacted with men. And I didn't fully understand, but there were some weird things in their culture. I didn't know much about Islam when I went over. There were weird things in their culture that I noticed, even as a young man. For instance, as little kids, the boys were exempt from all chores, but the girls alone had to do everything. Everything. So we would watch these little five-year-old girls getting water, because they don't have running water there, getting water for the entire household. And her brothers, sometimes they were teenagers, would be like throwing rocks at her and laughing. And they're like, what's going on? Like, why would, why would the girl have to do this? Why don't the boys help out? We also noticed that the girls were uniquely sexually abused. That the girls were married off around 12 or 13. The men were polygamous, meaning that they had multiple wives. And the girls were usually marrying men 20, 30 years older than them. Where again, they were just treated essentially like slaves. Beyond that, there were there were honor killings. I never personally witnessed one, but I saw one close to it. Um, it got around, it's kind of a brutal story, so I'm sorry in advance. It got around that the military was giving money to families that suffered collateral damage. So this one father beat his little girl almost to death and wanted money for it. He just thought like, oh, as long as someone in my family is hurt, I get money. And so he didn't think twice about it, just abused his daughter and expected cash in return. This type of callousness and hatred towards women is something I I never really saw in my life. It was very unique. It was very strange to me. But then I started studying Islam, and I realized, oh, this this fits very perfectly in their worldview. In Islam, Muhammad was once asked why women in their culture can only... their, their testimony in court is only half that of a man. And he says it's because of the deficiency of their minds. And he says, do you not know that the majority of dwellings in hell are women? So there's this perspective that he has that women are lesser men, and therefore they should be treated as such. Now, it sounds very grotesque to us, but we do see this kind of teaching permeate, again, the ancient world, this mistreatment of women. And it's only the gospel that's kind of elevated women to the status that they have in our culture. It's unique to Christian culture. Now, the unfortunate thing is that our culture really believes that all the benefits that we have as the West are actually in spite of Christianity, not because of it. And because of it, there's an active campaign to undermine Christian ethics within our culture. What they don't realize is what came before Christianity was not female empowerment, but subjugation. And so while we're missing this particular error, treating women as being solely comprising their capacity to bear children, we're going in the totally opposite direction, and what we're doing might even be more damaging. We're not subjugating women. We're erasing them. We're erasing them. Now, just so you know, I'm not making this up. I pulled a couple quotes from a couple feminists, uh, two of the most prominent. One is from first-wave feminism. Her name is Simone de Beauvoir. The second is from third-wave feminism. So that's the more recent form of feminism that's going on in our culture right now. So when Simone de Beauvoir was asked about motherhood, listen to her answer. No woman should be authorized to stay at home to bring up her children. Because if there is such a choice, too many women will make that one. It is a way of forcing women in a certain direction. This is not just saying, hey, I would prefer if women were in the workforce. This is saying, I want to destroy motherhood. I want to destroy it, because that's the only way that women and men could be equal in the workplace. She doesn't see that the value of a woman has anything to do with her capacity to bear children. She actually believes that she can only have value if that capacity is taken away. Now, the unfortunate part about her theory was that, well, what if a woman gets pregnant and she doesn't want to? Well, feminists were the first ones to really support the idea of abortion. Because in their minds, abortion was the way that a woman could become equal with man, even if she did, unfortunately, become pregnant. This is Naomi Wolf, third wave feminist, once again talking about women. Now, freedom means that women must choose self or to choose selfishly. Certainly for a woman with fewer economic and social choices, I had, for instance, a woman struggling to finish her higher education, without which she would have little hope of life worth, a life worthy of her talents, there can indeed be an obligation to choose self. Now, in what way should she choose self? The defense of some level of abortion rights is fundamental to women's integrity and equality has been made fully available by others, including, quite effectively, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There is no easy way to deny the powerful argument that a woman's equality in society must give her some irreducible rights unique to her biology, including the right to take the life that is within her. Abortion should be legal. It is sometimes even necessary. Sometimes the mother must be able to decide that the fetus in all of its humanity must die. That's her perspective. So she's not arguing that the unborn child is not human. She is saying the child is human, but he must be able to be killed so that the woman can be equal to man. Why? Because biology uniquely separates men from women. And if we want equality, women and men have to be indistinguishable. So we must erase the biological difference. We must erase the biological difference. C.S. Lewis, in his really fantastic book, The Abolition of Man, predicted all this. Back in the 40s, he predicted that our culture would go in this direction. And he once famously said, man's attempt to subvert nature has become the abolition of man. What he's saying is that back in the day, people looked at nature and they made inferences to it. So in other words, people looked at the biological capacity of women to bear children, and they said, huh, that's interesting. Men can't do that. There must be something unique about women. And some cultures, they venerated it. Some cultures, they hated it. Some cultures, they made it the only quality that valued women. But at least they recognized it. He said, in our day and age, we go against nature so that we can become masters of it. But by doing it, by destroying nature, we've destroyed what it means to be human. We're not really human anymore. We've taken away the nature of humanity in a a mad dash to try to subvert nature. The nature of a woman is not looked at with veneration anymore. Now, this is sad, but it's true. Even to a certain extent, this belief system has crept into the church. Where there isn't much, I'm not saying that it's not there at all, but there isn't much talk about how beautiful motherhood is. How glorious it is. How amazing it is. How unbelievably unique it is to the human experience. That women have this role as mothers. In fact, you know, there's a passage, I want to read it real quick, Isaiah 54 verse 1, Sing, O barren woman, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are your children, the children of the desolate, than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Now this is a specific prophecy about Sarah, but what I want to point out here is because the Bible says that there is If you can't have children, if you're barren, if you can't have children as a woman, whether it's through the fact that you're single or something biological, there is a glory that you can still have. Some people have read that and they said, oh, so motherhood doesn't matter. Now that's quite the leap. What this passage is saying is if God has in your life something other than motherhood ahead for you, he has given you a consolation that enables you to deal with that grief but it is a loss. Why is he saying that the children of the desolate are more than the married woman? He is saying that because he's he's getting to the idea that there is a consolation for women who cannot bear children that enables them to deal with that grief. He's not saying that they're equal. He's saying that there's hope. It's a very different message. It's not Loving or understandable for someone to look at a woman who cannot bear children and say, Oh, it's no big deal. There's always adoption, there's always other ways. That's not compassionate. A woman must understand what she's missing out on before she can be healed and find compassion in her grief. That's what this passage is getting at. Motherhood is valuable and it's beautiful and it's something that should be honored. And it doesn't make any sense for us as a culture to say in an attempt to not make certain women feel bad because they can't enter into this glory, we're going to diminish the role in its entirety. That doesn't make sense. We must give glory to this role, but also give hope to those who can't fulfill it. That's the call. Jesus provides hope for everybody. And by the way, we're going to talk more about this in the future sermons. But the role of a mother is not just relegated to her capacity towards her biological children. Do you know that there is a motherly role even in the church? Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 5 how women in the church become mothers to the rest of the body. It's a communal role. It's a beautiful role. We need the role of mothers. It is complementary to the man's role within the church. And without it, the man's role has no purpose. If all man can do is protect and provide, but there is no offspring to protect or provide for, our role has no purpose. It is the capacity of mothers that brings life and vitality to the culture, to the community, to the church, to the family as a whole. It is necessary, and it is beautiful. And again, it's really sad how some women who do want to look at this role as being so precious in their life, they're almost demeaned for it. Oh, that's all you wanted to do? That's it? You want to say, okay, that's cool. You know, you want to stay home with your kids? That's all right. You know, I know. I, I hired a nanny, but you could do that too. You know, this, this idea of this patronizing view of it, that it's not beautiful. You know, even sometimes I'll I'll talk to my wife, and she'll say, like, well, I feel like you're just doing so much for the house. You're going to work. You're doing this stuff. And I'm like, so what? My role means nothing if it's not for your role. I don't even care about making money if it's not for the fact that we're providing for our children. You make my life have meaning. My complementary role only has meaning because of what you're doing. It's beautiful. It's precious. And she's like, I feel like I could be doing more. What more could you do? What more can you do? You are literally there producing life in your body, nourishing it with your body, and then bringing up our child in the values, the doctrine, and the love of God. What is greater than that? Everything I accomplish in my life will wash away. No matter how great a teacher I am, no matter how great a pastor I am, Every impact on this world will be gone in 50 years. You know what the only thing that's going to remain is? My offspring. My effect, my legacy, will only carry on through them. That is the most important thing that is happening in my life right now is my kids. And if we lose that as a church, we've actually moved towards the world and not towards the gospel. If we want the gospel to liberate us, to make us see the beauty of God. We have to see the uniqueness in which it touches our roles. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much that through your son and through your example, you've given us this amazing capacity to understand this role of motherhood. We pray that we would move forward in our understanding of it, that we would be able to praise it and see it in a fresh and new light, that we would not allow the culture to infiltrate our way of thinking, to demean it, to devalue it anymore, but we would see it in its proper place, and we would value it as you do. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in our life, that you've given us the ability to create in our own image and reflect you in such a unique and amazing way. We praise you for your glory. We praise you for your goodness and your love. In your name, amen.